it's a tradition going back so many countless years of human beings gathering in the darkest of winter and in some way creating a circle, a sangha, a place of warmth and facing in toward the light with a bonfire, whatever, their backs to the dark, and facing the light of each other, finding light in community. And I very much wanted that tonight with you. I've never actually felt comfortable. I've been here several times in the Dharma seat, and I've never felt comfortable up there. I don't know. There's something kind of daunting about all that stuff, you know. <laughs> and, I, um, and I just feel right now, at this time in our history, our collective journey here as a, as a country called the United States of America, that, that um, being together, being with each other, is, is deeply important. And that more than looking for a leader or a, the next whatever, you say, where's the next Martin Luther King? Where's the next? It's like, here we are. You know, um, Thich Nhat Hanh, I think it is said that the next Buddha will be the Sangha. And the Hopi, the Hopi elders have a wonderful teaching on this that I wanted to share with you. I just excerpted a few of the, of the parts. And especially, I wanted to bring their voices in because of what they say and also because of the Standing Rock Lakota Sioux and all of the indigenous people showing us a way to resist what needs to be resisted in a prayerful, peaceful way. What, what a teaching for us. So the Hopi elders say, you have been telling the people that this is the 11th hour. Now you must go back and tell the people that this is the hour. Create your community. Be good to each other. And do not look outside yourself for the leader. This could be a good time. The time of the lone wolf is over. Gather yourselves. Banish the word struggle from your attitude and your vocabulary. All that we do now must be done in a sacred manner and in celebration. We are the ones we've been waiting for. When the soul within me stumbles And heaven is hard to find When the night is all ahead of me And morning is all behind When I cannot move the stars or the moon Or turn the dark to day Humble my heart Humble my heart But hopeful the music I play 
When the rage of nations fills the skies And poisons every breath And the weapons of futility They shadow us with death And when my arm can't reach to hold them back And it seems we cannot win Hollow my strength Hollow my strength But hopeful the song I sing Humble my heart, hollow my strength, but hopeful, hopeful the music I play. What has focused what I hope to share with you tonight is living in a new world. And I know that all of us were impacted by this election season, this election year. It has been like no other. And how you are holding it, how you are processing it, how you are um, moving through this time is probably very unique to each of us in some ways. And my voice is the voice that gets to say the most tonight. So I'm just speaking from my experience. And um, it may touch yours, but I don't want to assume that we're all feeling the same things and having the same process, because of course we're not. But I hope that there's universals in what, what I bring that will, will help us all on our, on our journey right now. I... Um, I'm inclined to sing more and talk less. There's a lot of talking going on right now. And if we're looking for wise words, the Internet is full of really amazing wise words. There's a lot of good stuff circulating. So I'm, I'm hoping to not add too many more words to all that. <clears throat> Humble my heart, hollow my strength. I think I'm very calling a lot on the strength that comes in vulnerability, that the fragility, the vulnerability that we may be now, the sense of a world we knew being suddenly not stable, not, 
not necessarily lasting. We know all about impermanence. We've been hanging around Buddhists. We know about impermanence. But here it is. Here it is. So we are vulnerable. And humility is not a bad place to be. The roots of the word humble, of course, so hummus, the earth, hummus. So humility is grounding. And I think of the veterans at Standing Rock kneeling before the elders. Just choke me up every time I think about it. Soldiers, I mean, think of the training that goes into being upright, being full of power, not, <laughs> not hollow, and to humble themselves and say our strength, the strength we showed, was not the right strength. And you elders, you people, you indigenous people are showing us the strength of vulnerable people. So if we're feeling fearful, if we're feeling just the anxiety of the unknown, let that vulnerability draw us closer together. And out of that, I know that strength comes. And I have stories in a moment that I'll tell you. It's a solstice tradition to sing and tell stories around the fire. So we're going to sing and tell stories. This is a song from childhood. I wrote it for children many years ago in a community where they'd had a lot of kidnappings and the children were very afraid. And a school I was an artist in residence in asked me if I could help the children with their fears. And so I thought, before I can help them, I better get in touch with my own. What do I know about fear? So this song um, lifts that up. And it offers us something very, I think, very important, which is in times where the, the moment is shaky and the ground has fallen from under, we need touchstones. We need things that are, feel lasting, more lasting. That's why we talk about taking refuge. Where do we take refuge? in the breath, in the moment. These are things we always have, even as we're falling through space. (laughs) We still have our breath. So this song offers a little touchstone. This world is such a big place And I'm so very small As I lie in bed with the lights all out my parents' voices down the hall. And my lamp looks like a monster's head. And there's something creeping toward my bed. So I pull the covers over my head. And I say my magic charm. I say starlight, star bright. Don't let the darkness eat up the light. Don't let me lie awake all night till the morning comes. Starlight, starshine, tell me everything's just fine. The world is turning bright on time. Morning always comes. This world can be a sad place. Oh, this world can make me cry. There's days I can't please anyone. 
It doesn't matter how I try. My best friend doesn't want to play. My parents act like I'm in the way. Crawl into bed at the end of the day. And I say my magic charm. I say starlight, star bright. Don't let the darkness eat up the light. Don't let me lie awake all night. Till the morning comes. Starlight, star shine. Tell me everything's just fine. The world is turning right on time. Morning always comes. Now, traditionally in a solstice circle, everybody sings. So um, let's do it. Starlight, star bright, don't let the darkness eat up the light. Starlight, star bright, don't let the darkness eat up the light. Don't let me lie awake, don't let me lie awake all till the morning, till the morning comes. Starlight, star shine, light, star, tell me everything, tell me everything's just for the world. The world is turning right on. Morning always comes This world, it ain't no picnic It ain't no cherry pie The little ones get messed with And the big ones just get by Now there's some who grow up fast and hard And they shoot their shadows down And there's some just seem to crumble. Turn their heads, they pretend there's no shadows around. Well, this world is still a big place, though the years have made me tall. And the darkness still gets hold of me, casting shadows on my wall. And the monsters loom before my eyes. If I look too long, I get paralyzed. Gotta trim them down to size. So I still say my magic charm. I say starlight. Star bright, don't let the darkness eat up the light. Don't let me lie awake all night till the morning comes. Starlight, star shine, tell me everything's just fine. The world is turning bright on time. Morning all, starlight up above. Take care of everything I love. Tell me that I'm big enough to face whatever comes. Starlight shine, star shine. Tell me everything's just fine. The world is turning right on time. Morning always comes. I know that morning always comes.
think it's really clear to all of us that the times were... Hold on. The times that uh, are upon us are probably going to ask more of us than many of us have been asked in our lives. Perhaps not all of us. And in the wider community of, of, of Americans, there are many, many, of course, people who have lived with the kind of fear, the kind of fragility and vulnerability and lack of, of um, hmm, understanding of what their government is doing. Um, but for many of us, it's, it's a bit new. It's a bit new. I think that's fair to say. And I think of the line in that song, tell me that I'm big enough to face whatever comes. You know, What will be asked of me? And will I have that capacity? And thank heavens, we here in this room have been given the blessed teachings of the Buddha and the practice, which gives us some practice at stability, at equanimity, and compassion, and, we'll, and courage, courage. And maybe the courage we've had facing our own demons in our practice, and maybe that has helped us to be courageous in more outward ways. So I've been thinking about um, how unprecedented this time seems in some ways for some of us, many of us. And yet other countries, not so much. Not so much. We're kind of late to the party you know, <laughs> when it comes to um, things that other countries have dealt with. And some of you know that I had the opportunity to travel for eight months last year um, with my guitar and um, as open a heart as I had, was able to, to open. And I visited uh, lots of parts of Asia and Africa and Europe. So I was visiting countries that have been through a lot. And I'm going to share a few stories from those countries in, in a few moments. But I, I'm very struck by how vulnerability has drawn the world to us before. This is not the first time that we have felt vulnerable. 911 was a huge moment for us where whatever illusions of immunity that we had as we watched other countries go through all kinds of bombings and, and um, massive community crises born of different what they call terrorist activities and, and how little blood has really been shed on our soil in war. And when I was in Europe last year and I was deeply aware that I was walking on soil that had been soaked in the blood of two world wars and how much history before that. And our land, of course, has been soaked in the blood of Native Americans and African Americans and our civil war. But still, compared to much of the world, we've, we've been very, um, as Paul Simon said, you know, it's, it's all right, it's all right. We can't be forever blessed in his wonderful song, American Tune, you know. So it's come around. Something's come around to us. So in, in 911 was a beautiful, beautiful moment the day of, the day after, in that the whole world turned to us, not as those wonderful leaders, those amazing Americans, those super-powered economy, those people who've innovated and, you know, whatever, wealth, and blah. They saw us as wounded brothers and sisters. What a beautiful thing. And to feel that, to feel on the receiving end of that, like, we need you, was new for me in my lifetime. I was born after Pearl Harbor and World War II. It was the first time in my lifetime that I felt that as an American. So, 
Seven years after 911, I wrote a song called Candles in the Window. And I was reflecting on this and on what, what transpired after that magical moment of opportunity when we could have created a new bond with the rest of the world. And um, we didn't seem to take, our government did not choose that path. So I want to sing this for you as a reminder of just that we're not alone. We may feel very alone and isolated right now because if we're frightened, we you always feel alone and isolated when we're frightened, but we're really not alone. Once again, I'll invite you to sing. There were candles, candles. There were candles in the windows all around the world. Candles, there were candles all around the world. When the planes burst into flames and the towers crumpled down, friend and enemy alike felt the trembling in the ground. The shock, it rippled around the world. The sorrow and the fright. People we called enemies lit candles in the night. A mother in Morocco, a teacher in Tehran, a soldier in El Salvador, child in Pakistan lit candles in their windows for strangers far away they felt our common sorrow we were family that day and there were candles candles there were candles in the
Oh, the wars that we have started, lives that have been lost, the trust that has been broken, how can we count the cost? Oh, but don't you still remember that day when we were one? day we were the wounded, not the heroes in the sun, the day our nation trembled and the world drew close and warm, with candles in the windows like a beacon in a storm. There were There were candles in the windows all around the world. Candles, candles. There were candles all around the world. This is a new verse I wrote for this our current moment where we need candles. So as the darkness deepens, we hold each other near. We light each other's candles and calm each other's fears. And all around this winter world, we pass a little spark. For those who sleep and those who wake find peace within the dark. We light, we light candles, candles. We light candles in the windows all around the world. One of my favorite authors I commend to you I'm sure this is in front of my mouth is Rebecca Solnit. 
She's written wonderful books. One of them is called Hope in the Dark, which would be a very good one to read for the first time or read again. But my current favorite book is called A Paradise Built in Hell. How many of you know it? It's, it's the book to read right now. It really is. It's about disasters and what people do in a disaster. And she studied five. Um, the uh, first San Francisco earthquake, 2000, I mean, 1906, I think. Thank you. Um, the Mexico City earthquake. The Halifax, Nova Scotia explosion, which I had never heard of. It's an astonishing story. Uh, Hurricane Katrina and 911. And I want to just read you a, a, a passage that I hope will lead us forward in the next piece I'm going to do. Um, she says, and this is after, there's a whole field of sociology called disaster studies or something like that, where they've really studied what human beings do in a disaster. She says, how we behave in disaster depends on whether we believe human nature is basically compassionate and altruistic, as disaster, as disaster studies show it was. Shows, rather. Disaster studies shows, Sorry or whether we believe in the social Darwinism of dog-eat-dog, thinly-coated savagery. How we behave, she's, this is quoting her directly now, how you behave depends on whether you think your neighbors or fellow citizens are a greater threat than the havoc wrought by the disaster, or that, a greater, or, or that your fellow human beings are a greater good than the property in the houses and stores around you. After Katrina, some people who had some security already guarded their houses with guns, gated everything up, and actually went out and shot people out of such fear that they were going to be looted and marauded. And other people got in rowboats and went out and rescued people. The image of the selfish, panicky, or regressively savage human being in times of disaster, has little truth to it. In Starlight, Starbright, it says there's some who grow up fast and hard and they shoot their shadows down and there's some just seem to crumble, turn their heads and pretend there's no shadows around. And I feel like that's a sort of a, a, bifurc- a crossroad that we can hmm, be wise to be mindful of tendencies we might have in those directions. I think my ears must be different than other people's. <laughs> these, these just never, never work for me. Really? Oh, okay. Why not? You think my right ear is different than my left ear? <laughs> it may be. It's certainly possible. <laughs> well, that might work a little better. Thank you. Um, so there's the hardening you know, against fear and turning aggressive as a way of trying to feel strong. But there's also kind of a a denial or a, um, yeah, a kind of hiding in privilege as long as we can. It's that very famous quote about when they came for the Jews, I didn't do anything because I wasn't a Jew, and you know, the whole litany. And then by the time they came for me, there was no one left to help me. And um, 
And there's also a bit of a denial that I heard, I've never heard this expression before. You're probably familiar with it, a friend of mine who said, yeah, we can't do a spiritual bypass around this thing. Like get very equanimous, very big picture, you know, and very kind of, well, you know, in in the biggest picture, you know, good news, bad news, who knows? Well, yeah, fine. But... (laughs) But um, there's, a, there's a bit of an escapism there that we, I think, need to be cautious of in, in being spiritual beings, you know. Um, so I, as I traveled, I actually encountered several examples of how human beings act during a disaster. And without going too long, I would love to just tell you a couple because they really struck me. Um, I'll start with a somewhat familiar World War II. Um, we all know a lot about it, usually. And um, in, in, Fran- in, in Holland, when I was in Holland, uh, a friend of mine took me on a tour that he does of historic uh, World War II history in, in Amsterdam. And we visited this civic, um, oh, I guess where the, uh, the, the Senate meets or something, wherever the official government stuff meets. And he told me that during World War II, when the Nazis had taken over Holland, essentially, that they demanded or commanded that the local officials work on their behalf, collaborate with them, and they put them in charge of, of selecting who would get put on trains and sent off to... They didn't say where they were going. We know now where they were going. But I think the, the, the Dutch people knew, knew enough to know what was going on. So there was a choice to be made for a city official. It was a, a horrible position to be put into. If, if he or she refused, she would be executed. If she or he collaborated, she would be a collaborator and send her fellow Dutch people to, to, to death. What to do? I don't think probably any of us know what we would do in that situation. I think one of the definitions of disaster is you don't know what you're going to do until you're there. And then we find out. And then we find out. But what my friend said is that those who chose to collaborate um, were, um, I'm sure some were vilified, or, or I'm sure there was a lot of feelings about it, but that what they were able to do because they chose to stay in the game, if you will, were they were able to make some selections and make some choices and do some things behind the scenes because, of course, they knew their country in a way the Germans didn't, so that they were actually able to save some lives. They were able to, to protect and, and create as much good as was possible in a horrifically ungood situation. So that was a kind of moral choice, and moral becomes quite um, um, nuanced in situations like this. And he said that in, in, it's been maybe two generations since then that children and grandchildren of those people now serve in the government. The country did not just ban them and vilify them and you know, write them off. They are respected parts of the community. So a, a nation healed from that as well. In France, um, when I was a child, I lived in France for a year, and we lived in a region that was a hotbed of resistance during World War II, near Saint-Étienne, if any of you know that district, Le Puy. Um, the Auvergne region. And um, I lived in a little village that became quite well known because it was a a peasant village of maybe 500 or 1,000 people max, Um, largely moderately educated, simple folks, mostly Protestant. And during the war, they became a um, shelter for Jewish children whose families were desperate to get them out of the cities where the bombings were. 
And at one point, it was said that there were more Jewish children or Jews in the village than there were actual people who lived there when there wasn't a war. And uh, when, when asked about this, you know, the, the people who, the farm people who took in these children said, well, of course we would do that. What, what else would we do? Of course, if children are in danger, we will take care of them. And they were, of course, risking their lives. And they knew that. They knew that. But there was not a puffed up heroism there. It was just, this is what you do. So that, that has stayed with me. That story has stayed with me my whole life. Um, this is what people do. This is who we are, we human beings. In Nepal, I saw a country that got devastated by a natural disaster, not a political disaster. But of course, natural disasters almost always have a political component, as Katrina being an obvious example. And um, they had a government that was fairly dysfunctional and quite corrupt. So all of the big aid, the U.S. aid, the U.N. kinds of aid that went in kind of disappeared, and it didn't get to the people. And what I saw happen was that there was a resilience that I, I just could feel and see in the way this country, which is not, never been, not a wealthy country, doesn't have a lot of resources, was already suffering in post-Civil War, the Maoist uprising, as they call it, and the embargo um, with India, Oh, no, that was after the earthquake, I guess. But anyway, um, how they just kind of had this can-do of like, well, we're just going to rebuild our country. The government isn't doing it, so we're going to do it. And all kinds of little NGOs who had been educating girls, helping women and girls get out of trafficking, building schools, um, doing all, you know, all women's economic development, they all turned their, their muscle to the task of rebuilding after the earthquake and setting up pop-up medical tests and centers and so forth. And it was just a really moving thing to see a people not wait and not, I didn't hear, I mean, they just weren't being victim-y, you know. <laughs> they were just doing what needed to be done. It was very, very touching and inspiring to me. The last country I want to tell you about, and if you were here when I was here with Kate right after the election, I probably talked about Liberia. But that was extraordinarily powerful for me. You may or may not know the story of uh, Liberia's civil war. It's quite well known, of course. Charles Taylor, a dictator, uh, warlords, rebels, the classic chaotic war situation where village boys are fighting village boys from another village with different warlords and the dictator with his armies and the people caught in the crossfire, women and girls especially caught in the crossfire. And it was horrific. And the country really fell apart. It really fell apart. Civic society fell apart. Um, there was no police force. There was no protection. These people were vulnerable on a very fun- fundamental, fundamental level. There was no one to turn to. When I went there, I visited with and stayed with women who, were, um, who became the peacemakers. They started a nonviolent women's peace action after 10 years of, of bloody civil war. And through... A, a beautiful array of nonviolent protests and s- vigils, and um, probably the most astonishing to me was in the villages, and I met with these women and heard their stories, when soldiers would come in, they saw them as the boys from the next village, in a, in a figurative kind of way. They may not literally have been that, but that's who they saw behind those guns. And they would walk out and surround them with their bodies, their unarmed bodies, and they would sing to them. And they would sing them songs from childhood songs that everyone knows. And they would say, we are your mothers and your grandmothers, and we 
want you to stop this. You, can, you cannot do this. This is not good for you. It is not good for the country. Your mothers want you home. And they had other tools of nonviolence that I won't take a lot of time now to tell you, but just to say, just to say, they stopped the war. They stopped the war. They met with a dictator who was narcissistic, delusional, and um, I'm, I'm not the first to say it. <laughs> and you can draw whatever conclusions you're drawing right now. <laughs> but um, anyway, and they, they basically shamed him into going to the peace table. So we're not the first people to go through this, needless to say. And whatever is out there that we can call on as this is what human beings have done so far is in us, is in us today. And more, and more we don't even know, more to be, to be discovered. So there's a lot of talk right now about how we, we live in a bubble. We've li- we live in a bubble. Um, fair enough, we do. <laughs> we did, we did. We live in a, a, a series of bubbles. We're the kind of the white bubble and the, the middle class bubble and the Bay Area bubble and the, you know, the U.S. bubble because the whole United States is a bubble. You know? So, and I thought, you know, the Buddha lived in a bubble, didn't he? He lived in a pleasure palace. His parents created a bubble so their little boy wouldn't get ideas about engaging with the world in any spiritual way, in any, yeah. So you all know the story. So he couldn't take it. He chafed against that bubble. And he went out to see what was out there. And I don't think he had a clue what was he was in for. You know, he was just naive enough to do something stupid. You know, bless his heart. And out he went, you know, and he encountered the heavenly messengers, sickness, old age, and death. And they were... They shook him to the core. They got him out of his paradigm. He didn't know the world anymore. He didn't know. He didn't know himself. Am I going to die? Am I going to get old? Who am I? What am I made of? And, you know, he could have gone fast and hard, or he could have gone denied, uh, you know, just crumbled. He could have gone home and said, wow, that was really interesting. Where's my iPhone? You know, <laughs> Where, I want to, I got to watch something, you know. Um, but he didn't. He didn't. It, he woke up. And then he went out, and then he really got, then he really got broken. He really got out of the bubble. And he, and he um, well, we know what he did. We know what he did. So that, that's kind of what I did um, last year when I, when I went out on this trip. I was really going to try to break myself open. I mean, you know, I, some of us go looking for disasters. <laughs> And, um, and, and in a sense, we all, don't we all, in a, some part of us, want to be shaken out of this, whatever it is that we create, this, this um, identity so that we can get up in the morning and brush our teeth and go somewhere and feel like we have a job to do and whatever. You know, we need that stability. But doesn't it also feel like a box sometimes and a cocoon that we're just like, oh, my wings, please, please, you know, I'll do anything, get me out of here. So I don't mean to be glib, but I think there is an opportunity here right now. As the familiar is taken away, as the unknown looms ahead, as we feel some fear, and we don't quite know who we are and what we're going to do, 
Let's just breathe into that for a moment. Rebecca Solnit's entire book is about the gifts of disaster. And I just have, I'm going to move into the closing in just a moment, but I've got to tell you one thing. After four months in Asia, which were incredible, I spent the last six weeks in Nepal, which was the most difficult country, just because they had been having the most difficulty. And I came out of there so exhausted and burnt out. And I was tired of, I was tired of sitting three to a seat on a bus. I was tired of the pollution and the noise and the crowd, the traffic, the driving. Any of you who've been in Asia know what I'm talking about. I was tired of the smells, of of being crammed into these little places where you smelled everybody else's smell and they smelled yours. You know, of riding six hours on a bumpy bus with somebody else's baby on my lap and somebody else's luggage on my shoulder. And... And the radio, the driver playing this loud, loud music. Oh, I was so done. I was so done with showers that didn't turn on. And if they did turn on, there wasn't hot water. I was so tired, pardon me for saying this, but of squatting over a hole in the ground. I was really tired of it all. I was done. And I thought Paris. I was flying from Kathmandu to Paris. Oh, get me to Paris. I want a bed, I want a seat on the bus that's just mine, or an Uber, (laughs) and hot water. I mean, I was so ready for the Western world, right? So there I landed. I was two days in Paris, and I didn't like it. I didn't like it because I'd gotten enough outside the bubble of American Western privacy, insulation, personal space, gated you know, houses, whatever, that, that just the, the, the gifts of, of, um, of individualism, right? The gifts of me and mine. There are great gifts there, but oh my, do they cut us off from each other. And the feeling I had in Paris as I wandered about was kind of, where is everybody? <laughs> I missed the very things I couldn't stand. Honest to God, I I kid you not, I missed them so much. I felt our loneliness. And in a certain way, I didn't want to come home. You know. But here we are. And maybe we're not going to be so lonely now. You know. So, I want to read one more Rebecca Solnit for you. And I'm, I'm, I'm um, summarizing her. She says, The disruptive power of disaster, its ability to topple old orders and open new possibilities. I call this, dis- me, this is me speaking, I, I call this disaster renaissance. This is my, my twin to Naomi Klein's disaster capitalism, is disaster renaissance. That's what I saw in Nepal. That out of the broken, crumbled structures... There's room for the new to come up. There wasn't a lot of room for really new, creative, radical action under the old, the old system, you know, much as we were comfortable in it. But now, anything's possible, right? You know, what's, what do we got to lose? So, anyway, 
In a moment of disaster, the old order no longer exists, and people improvise. They improvise shelters, communities, soup kitchens, new circles. Then, when it dies down, the disaster dies down, a struggle takes place over whether the old order will be reimposed or a new one, perhaps more oppressive, or perhaps just more just and free, will arise. More will be revealed on that. Okay, so we're going to close the evening by taking a moment to do a little short meditation. Um, If you would close your eyes, because I want you to be in dark. I want us all to be in dark. And maybe we could even dim the lights. I, I do enjoy that, if you don't mind. The Buddha said on his deathbed, he said, be a lamp unto yourself. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then in communion, he gave his disciples bread and wine and said, this is my body, this is my blood, giving the light to them. So each of us truly, truly are the light. And I would like you to just visualize in yourself that you are sitting in a completely dark room. No light. And take a moment to just look around that room internally. Every corner, no light. You are in complete darkness. And then you take one white votive candle and you light it. And just watch what the light does in the room. The light doesn't push the darkness or struggle with the darkness. It doesn't go reaching effortfully into the corners. It simply is the light. And its nature illuminates every corner of the dark, just by its nature. So breathe that light now into your whole being and know that you are that light, just as you are. There's never been another you in this world. And there never will be another you in this world. And by your nature, you radiate deep into the dark. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. 
This little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine This little light of mine I'm gonna let it shine Let it shine Let it shine Let it This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, shine, let it shine. Deep down in my heart, deep down in my heart, I'm gonna let it shine. Deep down in my heart, I'm gonna let it shine. Deep down in my heart, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. In the darkest hour. In the darkest hour, I'm gonna let it shine. In this darkest hour, I'm gonna let it shine. In this darkest hour, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. When I'm feeling scared, when I'm feeling scared. I'm gonna let it shine when I'm feeling scared. I'm gonna let it shine when I'm feeling scared. I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. So I forgot to mention that I'll have a little email list in back. I'd love to stay in touch with any of you who'd like to come sing with me in other ways and places. I'm very active in public singing for justice and renewal in this time. We sing at BART stations during rush hour. Ordinary folks, not professional singers, you can join us. And um, other post-election activities I'm working on, I'd love to let you know about that. So, offering up the merit of our time together. Offering up the ways our hearts have broken and opened. Offering up the tears that we've shed or felt. Offering up the new ideas we might have about next steps for ourselves. And all the love, good wishes, tenderness we feel toward the whole world, all those who have suffered as we suffer, who have courage as we have courage, who cry as we cry, who heal as we heal. May the goodness of this time together spread far and wide and deep into every heart. 
illuminating our world, illuminating our lives.